Joshua Cocaine and Gideon Salter are both at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. Joshua straddles a world of both ministry and academics. He's a minister in the Anglican Church, and he is always looking at how we can apply science, particularly psychological science, to our understanding of how to do church better. And for that, he's brought in Gideon Salter, who is focused on developmental psychology, interested in joint attention and communication to do that work together. So they've collaborated on a couple of papers, one called Feast of Memory, Actualization, and Liturgical Time Travel, and another called Praying Together, Corporate Prayer and Shared Situations. Both of these papers looking at um, rituals in the church and religious practices and how they shape us and form us and how they work. They're also collaborating on a project about gratitude, which you can learn more about at gratitudetogod.com. That is a huge initiative with a lot of sub-projects, so a lot of interesting info on that website. It's also just a good opportunity to hear from a collaborative team working on interdisciplinary topics and some of the benefits of that. Enjoy this conversation. I'm talking to Gideon Salter. And Gideon, you are a developmental psychologist. Yep. Researching right. shared experiences, how they yes. develop and why they matter. You can see I'm yes. pulling copy from your <laughs> web personal website. Yes. But it's still on still needs some work, but it's uh, getting there. But yeah. Uh-huh. And Josh, we've met before. You were part of our second theopsych seminar cohort right yeah that's right before the world went crazy i was in california <laughs> i know i know there could have been so much more fun to be had too and your lecture at st andrews the logos institute and an analytic and exegetical theologian correct yeah yeah that's right yeah yep and you're into ecclesiology and corporate worship stuff right yeah that's me yeah how did you guys meet and decide to start working together? Yeah, I mean, it was it was a bit of a weird coincidence. We had some mutual friends who said, I think, told Gideon first. They told me the topic of one of your recent presentations, which included the phrase joint attention, which is I'm always on the lookout for people doing research <laughs> in that area. So I messaged Josh, sent him an email and we got coffee and it kind of went from there, really. Yeah, it seems like folks who have collaborators in this area tend to do a lot better collaborators who they get along with yeah it helps <laughs> a big learning curve because a lot of people coming out of the theopsych program who are theologians or philosophical theologians are like oh this is impossible unless i get a second phd in psychology <laughs> but it seems to have a different tone if you find a collaborator who's sort of like-minded and can work through the material with you are you finding that to be true yeah it's been i mean it, it started off as a bit of an experiment really i think so I'd kind of dabbled in some of this developmental psych and I didn't really know what I was talking about. Uh, and then we had a, we had coffee and I was a Gideon was able to kind of set me straight on a couple of things, <laughs> but um, and then we decided it'd be fun to write something together. So the first thing we did, this was a couple of years ago now, we thought it'd be fun to write something about prayer and why. I mean, there's this idea you find in various theologians that praying together is, is important and Praying together is better than praying on your own. And that seemed like a kind of neat question to think about from a psychology point of view. So that was the first thing we did together was we worked on that paper. Cool. Yeah, we're fortunate enough to get it published. Like when you started to feel like you needed to be engaging the psychological sciences, like when when did that inkling first arise for you? I, I read Eleanor Stump's book, Wandering in Darkness, 
which she has this discussion at the beginning of Wandering in Darkness about the difference between knowing a person and uh, knowing a proposition. So you can know lots of facts about somebody, but when you meet a person, so there's a different kind of knowledge that happens. Uh, for, for me, that was a kind of intuitive, it seemed intuitively right and, and said I had a lot to contribute to theology. And Stump there draws quite significantly on a lot of the developmental psych literature. I guess that kind of piqued my interest. Um, I'd not, not really seen theologians make those kind of connections before. And then I suddenly found this huge uh, wealth of resources that was asking a lot of these kind of questions. So yeah, that was how I started. That's great. That's great. And Gideon, what about on your side of things? What makes it interesting for you to help make these connections to help sort of the the theological project? Was that something you were sort of already doing sort of on a personally or was it Josh that still, yeah. that first brought that to you, your attention? Yeah, I guess it's kind of funny to think what made me reach out to Josh in the first place is this sort of mix of it being partly a sort of academic general, I guess I'm a bit of a sort of generalist and I like reading a variety of things and engaging with people from a variety of perspectives, but there is definitely also a sort of personal feeling as a Christian in the world of psychology, uh, sort of bridging those two worlds perhaps, or it's not necessarily even bridging, just sort of figuring out your place. Cause it can be that sense of, you know, your, your feet are on two chairs that are moving apart sort of thing. And it's like, different <laughs> languages and different worlds. And I guess, you know, I think, I think you can be in the psychology world and sort of compartmentalize in that way, but I enjoyed not compartmentalizing the theological interests or questions and the psychological questions. And turns out there is so many ways that they can interact. I think probably interact is the right term rather than overlap or sort of merge. I think it's, you know, there is definitely through engaging with Josh, it's that sense of like, they're going to have distinct languages. And part of the challenge, I mean, we touched on this just before is how, how do you have those conversations? How do you find that language? And that's sort of personally useful as well, because, you know, otherwise you can have that sense of you know, trying to have these conversations about what you're doing uh, in the domain of psychology and then trying to find the right language to talk to others about that. And so, yeah, often that is a big part of the, the challenge. Yeah. And I think that's something we've been able to sort of refine um, the more we spend time working together, I think. Can you tell me, just because I don't know you as well, about your research interests? You mentioned joint attention, but what are what yeah. are some of your interests and, and why? I actually come from a linguistics background, and I thought, I mean, I find language very interesting, but as I studied it more, I sort of realized it wasn't so much language itself as communication, how we are able to communicate complex things to one another to sort of understand each other's thoughts and how that uh, relates to our communication. And so I was initially working with preschoolers on like theory of mind tests so their understanding of others beliefs about the world and I sort of through my studies came to be really interested in the really the very beginnings of communication and shared experience and sort of realized that if I was going to explore that in kind of psychological research that it was working with infants that's the the place to start because really you are seeing these things from the very beginning of infancy and particularly um, towards the end of the first year, there are a lot of changes going on in terms of infants starting to communicate about the world around them. So not just engaging in sort of face-to-face -face exchanges of smiles or emotions, but actually 
um, referring to things in the world. And I just found it so interesting. Um, I enjoy working with children. I've loved working with babies. And, and so my main sort of PhD project has been focused on that, conducting longitudinal work. So following a group of infants over time and running experiments. So like little games and activities that tell us things about their communication, their social understanding, that sort of thing. That sounds very cute. Yeah, it is very cute. I, <laughs> I think like, yeah, you know, when you're in lockdown and what you get to do is sort of watch really cute videos of babies all day, you know, you can't really complain too much. So. <laughs> Not too stressful, right? <laughs> do you have children of your own? <laughs> I don't know, but it's, okay. uh, yeah, so yeah, I think I think it kind of triggered for me when my uh, nieces were born. So my oldest oh, niece yeah. is about five years old and that's when I really... I kind of didn't notice it until later, but it was like in the year after she was born, I was like really interested in babies. And I think it kind of led down that. Yeah. <laughs> my daughter turned one this week, so she's just starting. Mm. And my husband's Panamanian and wants her to speak Spanish. So okay. we've learned yeah. like he takes care of her mostly during the day while I'm working and speaks to her in Spanish all day. And I'm speaking to her in English. He tries to speak with her only in Spanish, you know, <laughs> yeah. so that like he's the Spanish parent. I'm the English parent. But yeah. <laughs> um Anyway, it's she's doing all kinds of funny, cute, funny, cute things right now. Yeah, it's and an amazing time around that age, really. Yeah, it's yeah. just explosive. And she's very into, like, I used to wonder, uh, this is a tangent, I guess, because I'm <laughs> in, so into my daughter right now. <laughs> but uh, yeah, like, I used to wonder, why do we teach kids who live in cities like barnyard animal sounds? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. why is this important? Why? But now I see why it's important. A, they love it. They think it's, yeah. they're yeah. very intrigued by it. And um and B, it helps them learn sounds, like how to make sounds with their mouths, you yeah. know, like mm. she's still, she says woof all the time, but she's still <laughs> struggling with moo, you know, <laughs> it's pretty <Yeah>. funny. <laughs> and then yesterday, for the first time, we were singing Old MacDonald and she tried to say E-I-E-I-O and it, <laughs> we lost it, it was the cutest thing. Pivot back to what you guys, <laughs> she actually said amen this week for the first time. And of course I like mm. teared up because we do a little like <laughs> bedtime prayer and we... Yep finish the prayer and say amen and she was like amen oh, that killed us but anyway why do you talk a little bit about that project with prayer like what is the difference between praying solo and praying in groups yeah well I, I'll, I'll give it a go I'll probably need Gideon to come and help me with some of the psychology <laughs> as we go so the first thing to say is we don't we're, we're quite clear in the stuff that we do that we don't think you can give a reductive account of what's going on. We don't think you can just say everything there is to say psychologically and that's the end of the story. Clearly, there are lots of theological answers you might give to that question um, about why praying together is important that are not going to get captured under a psychological explanation. But really what we were interested in is thinking about why, what's going on psychologically when we're with other people and compared to what when we're alone. I mean, there's... Of exploring it, we sort of realize that this idea that perhaps we're never really praying by ourselves in some sense, in that we're joining with others, even mm. if we're not necessarily co-present with others, we're joining in mm. the church body as a whole. And and actually the sort of theoretical basis we were drawing from is sort of work that when we talk about sharedness and shared experiences with others, there's a sort of scale of jointness, if you like, on which that sharedness can occur. So if you sort of happen to be in the same vicinity as someone, there's a sense in which that's kind of joint, but it's not as joint as if you're engaged and communicating with them. And actually, we're sort of constantly embedded in sort of different levels of shared experience. So, you know, I'm in the same house as 
my wife at the moment, but we're not in the same room. Um, we're in the same Zoom call, so there's a sort of shared situation. And, and this idea of a shared situation, we found a sort of helpful way of expressing that. This idea that, you know, you're in many situations at once. You know, I'm in the situation of being based in Scotland, being based in the UK, and, and there's you can sort of tap into those different levels. And when it comes to a sense of sort of connection, it's a sort of multiply level sort of complex thing. So without trying to spell out, you know, these are the exact number of levels, it's more a sense in which when you, for example, enter a church building and start to pray, there's different senses of sharedness that you're experiencing, maybe with those in a small group that you're praying with, the church gathered in that building, and then the church as a whole. And and sort of psychological work has shown that people can have, you know, a shared experience, obviously, with someone they're talking to directly, but also when they perceive themselves to be watching a video with others, they can have a mm. sense of connection and the sense of that experience is being shared and if you look at you know the proliferation of streaming platforms youtube videos you know and even the difference between live and offline shared experiences so it's a we're only kind of really scratching the surface of this psychology in terms of the sort of richness of the variety of shared experiences that are available to us and and that's something we kind of wanted to bring in the discussion of prayer yeah, I imagine there will be an explosive interest in this given the pandemic. And mm. I just read an article this morning, actually, about a platform. I think it's, you know, everyone's using Zoom and Microsoft Teams is trying to compete right. more so. And they're doing something where instead of having this sort of Brady Bunch view of people, <laughs> it'll be right. more like people sit seated in an audience. Yeah. So you have more of a sense of... Like they're tricking your exactly. brain basically to combat Zoom fatigue. Are you familiar you with can, that? You can make yeah. them go under the sea. So I do yeah. this when I'm lecturing. <laughs> I don't I don't tell my students I'm doing this. I put them on this on together mode and it puts them all in like an aquarium. They have little faces bobbing around. Seen teams over there? Yeah. Yeah, we are. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. For teaching. So, <laughs> so you can watch your students yeah. bobbing around in an aquarium. <laughs> I guess that would help with the fatigue, right? If you're at least just well, it's a bit yourself. different, hey? Yeah, that's super interesting. So, yeah, what does that do to a person in terms? I guess there's all sorts of questions in terms of mm. learning um, or personal development, in other ways, growing and social unity, the kind of altruism or whatever word yeah. you want to use to. Yeah, there's a there's a really fun experiment that we looked at where. Um, if you think somebody's watching you, you behave very differently. And so even yeah. like if you put if you put eyes above a, if you if you have like an honesty box and you have and you put a picture of some eyes above it, people are more likely to put money in the honesty box than if the eyes are not there. And so we behave really differently when we think the situation is shared in some way or mm. collective. So hey. it's kind of asked some interesting questions about what's going on when we pray for things together. And if we, if we, there's a kind of accountability built in when you're praying with somebody else, like they expect you to act on it in a certain way. Under, there's different levels of how much nonverbal expression goes into right. communication right. in groups yes. and the limited access to that you get through a screen yeah. or, you know, and how that changes. Yeah, we were saying about joint attention and how when you look at any sort of liturgical context, uh, a big part of it is sort of an awareness that everyone is attending together. And, you know, if we are in a room with many people, we won't necessarily be able to communicate verbally with them, but we might see what everyone is, is doing or where they're attending. If you're sat in an auditorium, I mean, perhaps that's why Teams is trying to do that, that sense of perhaps when, you, when you're looking on a screen wherever everything's just sort of static it's you have that sense that not everyone's really paying attention perhaps in the same way whereas if 
you organize it like that. So yeah, yeah, the space can be a part of that too. So that seems to be a big context for experiencing awe or transcendence for mm. a lot of people. I don't know if mm. that's true or you can speak to that at all, but even just like going to a concert, which is something else we can't do right now, you know, that shared attention for a musical performance mm. and then just the experience of everyone else experiencing the same thing together and right. um, the same sort of yeah. emotions and narratives or whatever. Yeah, and there's a lot of work on synchronized movement and the way that can sort of create even sort of quite euphoric senses mm-hmm. of connectedness. And But it's, a, it's an incredibly diverse thing because I talked about there being different senses of sharedness and, you know, the kind of sharedness exper- experienced in a sort of highly... It involves a lot of bodily movement, um, a lot of emotion, creates a certain kind of shared experience that might be different from a more um, scripted and formal sense of shared experience. And they can, some people have theorized that, you know, you can have the, the former creates a very sort of intense personal bond and the latter creates a particular sense of corporate identity. And so you can see how this sort of the levels of sharedness and the fact that this kind of shared experience is not the same as that shared experience. Hmm. And it creates this on the level of identity more than the level of personal relationships. And so it's a, but of course you can't truly disentangle those as well. Whenever you're experiencing a sort of personal social bond, there's also a identity level to it. So yeah, it really is sort of a complex thing. Why don't we talk about that? This uh, recent article you guys did about remembrance and memory. Would you mind sharing a little bit about the work that went into that? Because it's it's using these ideas, yeah. some some similar ideas to what you're talking about with prayer, but applied to memory, re- remembrance, and um, how memory is talked about in scripture, yeah. and then the Eucharist and and all of that. Would you guys uh, mind expanding on that a little bit? The starting point is the kind of the place we we ended up in the prayer discussion, which was looking at like the way in which corporate prayer is has this kind of shared layered effect. But one of the interesting things about the rituals in the Christian and Jewish tradition is that that layered effect is supposed to extend backwards to the past. So there's a sense in which we share our experiences shared, not just with people in the present, but also it extends backwards into time. So we did a bit of research in the some there's a big discussion of this in the Hebrew Bible. Um, scholarship about the, the the richness of memory in scripture and in particular it seems like for hebrew rituals it's not just about remembering facts which is why they have this they have so so taking an example like the passover meal which we used it's not just about remembering that your ancestors were slaves in egypt when you taste the bitter herbs in the passover meal you're supposed to in some sense taste the bitterness of of their experience and so there's a sense in which it's trying to capture the sense that your experience is shared with the past, not just facts. But also there's a discussion of the ways in which that shapes our bodies as well, how we relate to this kind of muscle memory that you get from doing something like riding a bike, which is a completely different kind of remembrance altogether. But the ritualized way of remembering is is supposed to orient us towards God in a certain way. We found that kind of interesting because it connected with a lot of the ways in which memory has been talked about in in recent psychological um, research. Mm. So, but the the puzzle there is how can you remember something that you were never there for? That seems to be the claim of the Passover and the Eucharist as well. We we do this in remembrance of Him. How do you remember something in that kind of rich sense if you were never there? So that that's really the puzzle that we're trying to explore with this with this article. 
So do you want to say a bit about mental time travel? This is a really, yeah. I, feel, I think this is really fun stuff that's going on in psychology. Yeah, so we talk about these different um, sort of senses that memory gets used in psychology. And um, there's semantic memory, which is, you know, memory of facts. So, you know, I was born in St. Cross Hospital is one such fact. But then there's, there's, I know how to ride a bike. I remember how to ride a bike sense, which is sometimes called procedural memory. There's also episodic memory, which is a really kind of big topic of research, basically. Um, and that's memory, uh, well, it's depending on who you ask, it's defined slightly differently, but it's a sense of a memory with the experience that it, being experienced from a subjective perspective. So um, this idea that I remember uh, my first day of school. And so that's something that's experienced by me in the, from a particular perspective. And research has shown that this suggests that neural networks involved in episodic memory are also those to do with thinking about the future as well. So as sort of as a way of bringing those together, the term mental time travel has been introduced to capture the sense that you can mentally time travel in either direction, whether into the past, into a past experience, or to think about the future and what you might be experiencing in the future. And quite recently, there have been discussions of the idea that that can be something that you can do with others. Now, there is a problem there of you can't have that same sense of a subjective experience in the same, in a shared way, but there are things you can share about past experiences and you can sort of think about a future experience with another, you know, so thinking about how moving to a different country, how it might affect you and your partner or whatever it might be. So something like that. So this idea of mental time travel is something we, we draw upon and this idea of collective mental time travel in particular, is there a there's this sort of concept that gets termed actualization with reference to memory, this idea of sort of bringing the past to the present, which to us had sort of echoes of this idea of mental time travel. And part mm -hmm. of that also is the, the idea of identity as well, the role that these things play, different forms of memory play in identity. So for me, for example, I have Jewish heritage and grew up participating in the Passover Seder. And so there is a personal very sort of evocative thing and it, it's part of um i think we use the phrase something like it's not just a story but it's sort of our story my story and that sense of identifying with a memory and how memory and identity are sort of inextricably linked as well so again it's this idea that there's a complexity to this that psychology kind of it makes it sometimes tricky to engage because you're kind of you don't want to always just be like this thing is really complicated and there are loads of psychologists mm. working on many different questions here, but sometimes that's an important thing to acknowledge. And actually when you can sort of wrangle some of that complexity a bit and just say, well, look, broadly speaking, this is what we can say. It's actually shows the richness of memory and actually kind of, that's a nice sort of interaction with the theological resources there as well. Yeah. Um, wow. There's so much there. <laughs> so there are so many different ways to go with that. I mean, I could just think about like, engaging the senses and not just the mind in mm. sort of a meditation on a narrative that you're the, so so the senses are sort of being used to draw you into this existing narrative that extends right. into the past and and then maybe into the future and actually our senses that there's a huge amount of research on the role of the senses in memory and smell and taste in particular are supposed to ha be able to form deeper um, memories than than our other senses and so it's it kind of makes sense that rituals will form around around eating yeah because mm -hmm. because it, it forms memories in a very different way think of the rituals that we use in a kind of western culture like we 
we we have big family meals at Christmas and Thanksgiving, I guess, in your context as well. But right, right. I mean, that mm-hmm. meals are so important mm-hmm. part of the rituals. So another thing we talk about in the paper is the role of reminiscing in families. And I don't know about your family, but my family certainly kind of mark moments in their history by thinking about meals that they shared or times they gathered on holiday. And I mean, a student, I, I was teaching this stuff recently, and a student even said something to me, which I it's kind of neat, which was, there's a sense in which she said she remembers things that happened before she was born because they'd, they'd become so ingrained in the family narrative mm-hmm. that like they talk about this meal that they shared together or this experience that they had, uh, that she's actually got a memory of it uh, because <laughs> it's kind of, the, mm-hmm. and I think really that's what's going, that's kind of what we think is going on in the Eucharist and the Passover is that yeah. it becomes part of the like cultural memory. I feel like pastors need to be better storytellers too to sort of link us right. to some of these. I don't know, because like with the Eucharist, I feel like not all churches, but some churches, it becomes kind of more about just thinking about the theology and atonement or something and not thinking mm-hmm. about this right. moment that Jesus shared with the apostles around a table, which I know it, it's about both. It's about all of these things, but you know, there's something about that. That's what we're doing, right? We're like reenacting mm-hmm. that, that mm-hmm. meal, you know? And it's not always very shared, is it? Like, I mean, in my, I'm in an Anglican tradition. We kind of queue up down the middle of the church and all take it in turns to eat a wafer. Um, <laughs> and it, it's very like me and Jesus. It's not, it doesn't have that sense of like we are sharing this, um, this celebration together. Right, right, right. Yeah, some churches will do like the small group around the, in the front, like at a time, like yeah. little time things. The church I grew up in did hand it all out and then it's like you had to wait <laughs> until the pastor was like, okay, now everyone now you can you know and i do remember too that my parents weren't actually my dad was in charge of the communion elements um when i was a kid Mm -hmm. at the church and we were getting oh maybe you guys don't have this but it was like it was hawaiian sweet bread so it was like this very (laughs) moist bread you know be torn up into all these little bits Mm -hmm. and then passed around and i remember being so excited Mm -hmm. for communion because and when I was really, we switched to doing it weekly, but at first yeah. we did it once a month. And that once a month, I'd be excited to have that like sweet bread, you know, <laughs> at some point, you know, some grumpy person was emailed the pastor and was like, why is this leavened? Why are we eating mm. leavened bread? You know, <laughs> and the pastor right. was like, hmm, you're right. Yeah. So then we had to go with the matzo, you know, <laughs> to be a little more authentic. And of course now, I mean, a lot of churches now on Zoom church at, at the point where it's during the communion. I'll be like, okay, go get whatever you got, you know? Yeah. <laughs> some people will come back with some fruit punch yeah. and like some Cheez-Its, you know? Yeah, it's interesting. The, um, I guess the idea of making it special, I mean, is sort of, I guess one of the things we were sort of driving at in that paper is this idea that if you have it as a sort of holistic, many-layered experience, that's that's kind of when those things are at the most memorable, really. So like the idea that it's, it's mm-hmm. special, and there's a lot of writers that talk about liturgical time versus historical time and this idea that when you're engaging in liturgy it's almost like a stepping out of time in some way and it's a creation of a space that's special and distinct and i think it's not just being told that communion is special that makes you think it's special it's mm-hmm. those liturgies themselves you know the fact that it was hawaiian bread in some sense was telling you this is special this is a special time <laughs> in the week but yeah. i don't get that the rest <laughs> of the week and actually you know reflecting on how can you create that sense of specialness of holiness, I guess, ultimately through the actions that you're doing through, you know, the type of 
how seriously you take it. Maybe I don't know. Like there's so many ways, there's so many things you can think about. How do we create a sense that even somebody who doesn't get the intellectual side of things can still participate and still grasp a sense that okay, this is a special time, this is a special thing we're doing. That's something that I think we'd like to we're thinking of pursuing further as well. I know there's some psych literature too about ritual and how there's mm. benefits to these sort of, I forget the names of the categories, but they're sort of the smaller rituals that you do quite often. Yeah, yeah. And then there's the yeah. bigger rituals that have more of an emotional, um, yeah. you know, like a, a baptism, for example, yeah. versus versus Eucharist or something like that. That both have like positive effects and social bonding effects and, yeah. and things like that. Are you guys partnered on the gratitude project as well? Yeah, we are. Yeah, we've, we're we're spinning a lot of plates at the moment. Yeah. We, all of these things are kind of linked together in our mind. We're we're, we're thinking yeah. of it as a kind of big project, thinking about the role of uh, how how liturgy is shared, how worship is a shared experience, and we're we're kind of coming at that from a lot of different angles. So it's not that surprising that uh, when we're, we're we're doing this project on gratitude at the moment, and that's precisely what we're asking: is how can gratitude be shared? So yeah. I mean. There's, there's a huge literature on psych literature on gratitude and the benefits of being grateful. And there's some great work on that, but there's not a lot of great work on being grateful together. Surprisingly. Right. It's very um, individualistic. Yeah. It's very, it's very individualistic. Yeah. And even uh -huh. the stuff that's moving in that direction is talking about like how my context where my gratitude is nested in a broader group gratitude. Um, and, and I think really the reason for that is there's a lot of, uh, people who think gratitude involves a feeling of some kind. So if you look at someone like Bob Emmons' work, he basically says this, at the heart of what gratitude is, is this kind of nice feeling, this good feeling that you get when you are grateful to somebody. But if you if you look actually more broadly, there's a lot of different conceptions of gratitude in the literature. And uh, people think some people think it's a kind of character trait of uh, responding well to receiving gifts, for instance. Uh, there are other people that think you can get gratitude just to be a kind of action. Um, and you don't need to have that feeling attached. Um, so there's, it's interesting to see there's, there's the discussion of gratitude is kind of broadening. And I think thinking about what it is for gratitude to be shared. So, I mean, there, there are kind of layers to this, like there are with all the, all the things we've been talking about. So, so the first kind of example is like you, you know how if you're moving a piece of heavy furniture around a room, that's an action that you're performing together. There's been a lot of work on joint action in philosophy and psychology. The moving the chair is something you're doing together. It's not something you can break down that easily into individual parts. And it looks like there's some examples of gratitude, which are like that. You can only think of cheesy examples. You, you and your partner get some good news and you kind of burst into a spontaneous song of praise together. I don't know, something like that. looks like that's an instance of shared gratitude. Mm -hmm. But then there also seem to be cases where we can think congregations or organizations are have a grateful culture to them. The, the, the kind of place where gratitude is expressed readily. And that's it. I mean, we're, we're kind of early early days in this project, but it, sure. it would seem like that would have a huge benefit on your individual gratitude, belonging to a culture and a group which has gratitude in that kind of way. So, yeah, these are some of the questions we're asking because yeah. clearly gratitude is, is central to worship and to, to liturgy. And so it makes sense to unpick what's going on when we do that together. Yeah, I think all these projects that you're talking about are sort of rescuing the sense of just group corporate response to God that is the scriptures are saturated with, you know, that's definitely the mentality yeah. of the culture of the 
the Old Testament and the New Testament, but our, you know, our Western culture has lost some of that with the the strong sense of individualism and, you know, all the cowboys over here in the United States and whatnot. <laughs> Everyone's just getting on their horse and riding west, you know? So <laughs> I really like that these projects are really focused on on the group, but it gets very complex, right? I think it's just easier to study a smaller unit, even at just mm -hmm. one person by themselves is so complex. And then you throw in these group situations and there's there might be some emergent qualities that, that get very complex to sort of analyze. Mm -hmm. I think that's a big part of the sort of practical obstacles. How do you even begin to measure or assess these things on when it comes to groups and depending on the phenomenon that you're interested in you know whether that's gratitude compared to something like shared attention they're going to look quite different and part of that is sort of figuring out well in what sense is the gratitude of a institution uh similar but also different to the gratitude of an individual and actually how do those relate up and down that scale of however many are grateful it's a that's a tricky thing how how do you sort of find the right language to articulate that yes they're they're related yet distinct and how do you begin to measure that and yeah it's very tricky even just going from one person to two person two people is, is tricky enough so. <laughs> right yeah jo josh alluded to it gideon but did you have any instincts or thoughts so far on what gratitude is are we locating it in, within people as a feeling as an expression as practices all of the above how do you think of that so far the sort of perspective i come from as a developmental psychologist is one where it sounds kind of obvious but part of understanding that question really is looking at the developmental process and i think for many skills in the sort of research tradition that i'm in we find that many um apparently sort of individual cognitive effective capacities emerge out of relationships with others so engagements with others communicative exchanges with others and so it wouldn't surprise me if to really understand the origins of the individual sense of gratitude we have to look to the relational context i mean if you look at working with infants that's just abundantly clear if you want to understand infant language if you want to understand infant gestural communication you have to look at the the context in the social context in which they're embedded you can't really begin to understand language without looking at social engagements that occur between infants and their caregivers and so i can't answer the question about gratitude by exactly but i can say that my my strong hunch would be that it's something that does emerge out of social engagements with others i mean across the different subfields of psychology you're going to see people saying that human sociality is such a distinctive feature of our species that you're not going to go too far wrong if you say well let's consider the sort of social dimension to this even the most apparently individualistic of cognitive traits or emotions or whatever it might be right and then there's the also the distinctive level of this project where you're talking about gratitude to god so there's this social gratitude to god right so that we're all yeah. sort of sharing in i remember being taught to pray and you 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 always thank god first before you ask god for stuff <laughs> right that's the yeah. right way to do it yeah. that's part yeah. of the tradition i was growing up in at least and we maybe in a church setting feel different levels of gratitude at different times and maybe we encourage one another to be grateful or we sing songs about being grateful 
Yeah, yeah. This, I mean, this is one of the things that it's been helpful to pick apart the difference between uh, gratitude to God and gratitude in other contexts. So, so one of the the um, psychological um, discussions we've been finding really helpful is in in business psychology, where they talk about the phenomenon they call um, social loafing, which is basically uh, the discussion is around like how to make what size organizations should be to get the most efficiency out of employees. And they've done a lot of research around like if your group is too big, then you get people that don't pull their weight. Um, and there's there's some kind of business psychology about how to create context where everybody pulls their weight equally. But there, there hasn't been a huge amount of work on the the positive effects of loafing. But I mean, for all the reasons you just suggested, actually, you, we want the church to be able to have a, a certain amount of loafing going on because uh, you want to be able to carry people that can't pull their weight, either because they're going through a a really difficult time. They don't. They don't feel particularly grateful. Or even some of the other examples that we've been giving of people that don't have the same um, cognitive abilities as everybody there, or or the the infants that are part of your congregation. So, mm. I mean, that's been a kind of fun thing to think through about how we don't want the church to function like a business or an organization. We want people not to be able to pull their weight. That that's there's a certain amount of that which is a good thing in in the context of worship. Mm. Yeah, we don't want the, um, it might sound like the focus on the group sort of loses the individual. I think you still want to have a role for the individual within that as well. And I think it's more that we think that to understand the individual, you have to sort of see how their their relationship to the, the wider group. And yeah, that's one such case that might be that some particular individual isn't experiencing certain kinds of feelings, but yet is embedded in a certain context that, then in turn facilitates those feelings so that at another point they take their turn to be the grateful one when somebody mm -hmm. else perhaps isn't so yeah do you think you guys could comment on any of the research regarding gratitude and its positive effects i think that's the most i mean surprising yeah i mean the the stuff that we've been most so there's a researcher at baylor joanne sang who's doing some really interesting stuff that's looking at positive effect in group context so that's stuff we've been that really interested in and she's shown that there's uh so the question she's asking is like does gratitude which is nested in a wider context uh make you more grateful than if so the example she gives is suppose like your house burns down and you receive this huge a sum of money to rebuild your house how does that kind of gratitude compare to one in which the whole streets the whole street burns down and that somebody like a wealthy benefactor pays to rebuild the whole street. And so your your gratitude is nested in a broader gratitude. And some of the research she's been doing actually shows that we have a stronger affect in the, the nested situation than in the individual situation. So there are benefits to being grateful in a broader context. Yeah. Which is, I mean, I think it's kind of fascinating. It kind of backs up some of the stuff Gideon's been saying about how inherently social we are yeah. as human beings are you guys aware of any research it's okay if you're not familiar with this but any yeah. about how to cultivate gratitude in people in one another and or the impression i get from the studies that we've looked at on this is is i guess touching on something we were talking about before is that actually thinking about it as a practice so often work on sort of gratitude interventions will involve um encouraging people to take time in their day to you know, cultivate the practice of being grateful. So it's, I guess, thinking about it sort of 
if it's just as a feeling that you sort of hope to come along, it's unlikely to happen. But if you get into the practice of being grateful, and again, there's this sort of linkage between understanding it on the sort of a certain sort of cognitive level and then doing it in an active sense, I think is um they they sort of can complement each other. And I think it's yeah, this idea of creating it as a practice. So and with children, I mean this is this is more speculative, but so much of a children's life is about the sort of rituals that you embed them in and that you encourage them to participate in the routines that's part of their sort of life education if you like and and if gratitude is included as part of those routines if they get into the habit of being grateful if they learn how to be grateful if they learn how to pray grateful prayers you know that's going to be cultivating those things and and you're going to see those effects is what i'd think yeah just doing the doing the practices and the rituals can help um, cultivate it and maybe make it more more natural as we model it for one another. I, th- I think I'd like to talk a little bit just about collaboration in general. So highlights mm. and lowlights of collaborating across discipline. You mentioned one of the things was sort of terminology and just communicating mm. was is kind of a first hurdle or an early hurdle. Maybe you guys could just make some comments about that. Psychologists use so many references. That's the first thing I noticed <laughs> when I was collaborating is like why why reference one paper when you could reference 20 that's yeah. uh <laughs> the more the better. Of i mean gideon my i guess so i'm a i work in theology but i'm come from a philosophy background i work in analytic theology my um, tendency is always to try and make things as concise and um tidy as possible and psychology likes to as as you've kind of heard from some of gideon's thing because because things are complex psychologists always complexifying things i mean in some ways it's kind of a healthy part of the relationship we're often pushing in opposite directions that i'm trying to oversimplify things and gideon's trying to over complexify <laughs> yeah i think that is i think it's like because there's this sort of tension of like i think one thing we've sort of learned to do is recognize that psychology is incredibly fast moving so i think you know some of the most popular the sort of upheavals that it's undergone in the last 100 years you know, more than some fields have undergone in the past thousand years, probably. It's just so fast moving. There's so many new technologies that get brought in, which I think is unlike any other discipline. You know, the, the number of new ways of the way that eye tracking research, for example, has revolutionized social psychology and developmental psychology. It's only really been used in the past probably 15 years and sort of widely available in the last 10 years. And that's, you know, changed how we think about infants, has changed how we think about great apes, for example. Like, there's so many. So that's just, you know, within a decade, if you're not careful, the stuff that you're citing is going to be out of date. So you kind of have to identify, okay, what are the good, really good ideas that are going to stand the test of time? Try and use the evidence where you can. And I think actually it's helpful to be doing that sort of interdisciplinary work because you think about that a bit more than if you're just sort of in your own sort of psychology bubble. Yeah, because you, you know, the theologian will just be happy to read old books all day long. (laughs) Yeah, part of it just seems like you become mindful, though, uh, from the theological side of the empirical claims that are being made, or when an empirical claim is at Mm. least related to something you're reading in the theological text or or whatnot. Um, And then it might make you more aware even of stuff Mm. that might have just been contextual, cultural at the time that everyone took for granted that we don't Mm. anymore. Because there kind of tends to be an imbalance in terms of interests. So 
there's way more theologians who are interested in psychology than there are psychologists who are interested in theology i think that's, <laughs> and um and it can create a sense of sort of authority like the psychologists get the sort of final say on things and actually i think it's good for theologians to be sort of a bit bullshit in that regard of like actually it's not like psychologists have got things sorted you know in fact if anything psychologists have tendency to drop a theory and pick up a new one within you know five years of research sure. or something so it's like i think it's good to be sort of bold in in challenging those theories and yeah i think i think generally the best ideas do stand the test of time and 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 that does come through even if certain methods challenge certain aspects of a theory you know or there's a new way of interpreting a set of results or a result perhaps doesn't replicate which is an issue in psychology you know how what are the most robust results that you sort of really want to hang your hat on and so so yeah there's a lot of those sort of complexities that are a sort of step after developing that shared language, I think. And it just comes through through trying ideas out, I think, and seeing what seeing what works. Yeah, really trying things out on specific ideas like you guys are doing. Yeah. It seems to be the most successful yeah. strategy. And I, so I think the other thing to say is we it hasn't been a neat carve down the middle. Like I do the theology, he does the psychology. Yeah. Um, actually it's way more of a conversation than that. Um and so so there's I don't think even now, if I picked up one of our papers, I'm not sh sure I could always tell you who wrote exactly which sentence. Yeah. Um, because we're we're always trying these ideas out in conversation. Um, and like Gideon says, he he will let me ask the stupid questions like why why would you think that's true? What and but that but that kind of conversation helps to develop the ideas in interesting ways. So I think that 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 would be my best advice for collaboration is don't don't carve it up too neatly, because I don't think you'll actually get into the really interesting discussions until you're prepared to challenge one another's presuppositions and the expertise. Right. right. Side note, I think the funny bodies have noticed there's a lack of psychologists yeah. who are into theology, yeah. so that there might be uh, some grants in the future working on that sort yeah. of thing <laughs> to sort of yeah. incentivize some psychologists <laughs> to want to help out. For sure. You don't get so many psychologists of religion you get psychologists who are interested in the area who then apply that to religion is something that's been said to us and i think um, that might right. be a way to encourage more psychologists is to say you don't have to become a psychologist of religion whatever that means but say you're in like being interested in joint attention there's so many interesting questions you can ask when you consider religion is such a, you know it's one of those words that's uh it's not a thing as justin likes to say <laughs> right that's a good comment yeah, if you're really interested in what you're studying, I think is if you're really interested in it, you'll, and this is, I guess, going back to what I was saying before, like, I'm not ever going to become a theologian, but it lets me ask interesting questions by working on these topics that I actually wouldn't have been able to ask or think about if I wasn't doing this kind of engagement. So I'm, I'm grateful for it in that regard. And it makes me a better psychologist, I think. Totally. I think any kind of, you know, get it, stretching yourself into other disciplines is always sort of just a good exercise for your mind and helps you get mm. like out of that tunnel vision. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And like you said, you've, you're offering a, uh, the perspective of a developmental psychologist. Um, and that kind of colors a lot of your, your input, which I think is great. Like, I mm. think that's probably very helpful for the stuff that, you know, and Josh is interested in and you both are interested in. I had a conversation with a theologian the other day. I was talking Ryan Peterson. You know him, Josh, at Biola. Yeah, I don't think we've met, but I know who he is. Yeah. Okay. He's doing a project with Scott Harrower through Theopsych, and they were talking about personhood and what is mm. the self and some Imago Day stuff and whatever. But he's lately been looking into personality psychology to inform mm. some of that theological project. And so, yeah, you're right, Gideon. That all kinds of psychologists could 
find themselves mm. useful to these theological projects. Mm. The last thing I wanted to ask, I guess, um, which is I like to kind of end on this, but if either of you have reflections on how interdisciplinary work is a benefit to the church. So if a pastor or some kind of ministry leader were to ask you, why should I care or why would it be helpful? What, what kind of, what would you say? And I know, Josh, you are a minister, right? You're, you're involved. In yeah, in the Episcopal Church of Scotland. I mean, there's a, there's a sense in which um, I really, so I really like what Justin said when we were at Theosite, which is that psychology basically just proves things that people think they already know, <laughs> kind of puts data behind people's intuitions. And, right. I, and I wonder if there's almost a sense in which like a lot of churches, psychology is actually closer to their kind of their language and the way they understand the world than a lot of the kind of big ideas of theology. And so there's mm -hmm. almost a sense in which I find like being able to explore theological ideas psychologically might translate them into ways that um, connect intuitively with people. And obviously there's always a risk that you oversimplify or try and explain away the theological. But I do think that it connects a lot of these theological questions at a human level and a really pragmatic level. Like psychology cares about like what the effect of something is right. a lot of the time. And, and that's not a question that I think theologians are very good at asking. Hmm. But it's a question that I would guess a lot of people in churches are asking. Like, why, why, why should I pray? Like, I mean, what, what's good about praying? Mm -hmm. uh, the kind of answer you get from a, a theologian to that question is very different than the one you'd get from a psychologist. I guess just to point out for psychology specifically, it can't really be disentangled from its sort of historic roots and the associations that come with it. And I think there is perhaps a fearfulness of it or a sense of an antagonism there that I don't think has to be true. I think, you know, I understand why there can be that aversion or how it's that aversion sort of originates. Um, but I think ultimately it ends up being tending to be very personal, I think, with psychology, because you can't get away from the fact that it's talking about things that are very close to people's hearts and, and they're deeply held values. I think that's something that I've realized talking to people about it is that a lot of these topics are deeply value laden. And but I think that building on what Josh said, that that's all the more reason to engage these things because you can start to really get at those sort of meaty conversations where people's real values come to the surface. And I think when you're talking about the mind, when you're talking about children and development, when you're talking about emotions, you know, these are topics that are hugely meaningful to people, just as, as Josh said, because mm -hmm. they are so intertwined with our values. And I think that rather than that being a sort of scary thing, I think perhaps the fear comes that, you know, you can have a sort of shallow church environment because it's safer you don't have to touch on those potentially explosive mm. topics so i think um psychology can kind of provide some helpful language to start to address those those topics and then actually have a really sort of meaningful community and a yeah i think there's so mm -hmm. much to be gained from that well thanks guys so much for taking the time to do this i think it'll be yeah. really helpful this podcast is brought to you by blueprint 1543 Learn more about our mission, vision, and resources at blueprint1543.org. I'm Sari Martin Concepcion.